healthcare workers are very dedicated, but I think our military medical folks take it to the next level and that they're incredibly valuable assets, whether they separate at some point in their career or whether they retire and then go into the community. They have tremendous things to offer, not only in terms of their medical knowledge and experience, but in terms of their leadership. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, Wardox has you covered. On this episode, we'll be speaking with the Surgeon General of the United States Navy, Rear Admiral Dr. Bruce L. Gillingham. Dr. Gillingham received his medical degree from the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences and trained in orthopedic surgery at the Naval Medical Center San Diego. He also completed training as an undersea and dive medical officer. He completed fellowship training in pediatric orthopedic surgery at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, and is currently a diplomat of the American Board of Orthopedic Surgery. Dr. Gillingham has held multiple clinical, operational, and strategic leadership roles within Navy medicine. Rear Admiral Gillingham currently serves as the Surgeon General of the Navy and the Chief of the Navy Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today we are privileged to welcome the Surgeon General of the Navy, Rear Admiral Dr. Bruce Gillingham to Wardox. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Admiral Gillingham, tell us what led you to consider Navy medicine as a career. Yeah, I, I come by it honestly. Uh, my dad was a Navy physician. When he would talk about his career, he always seemed to go back to the time that he spent in the Navy. And so he spent time on a nuclear submarine on a, one of our boomers as the physician when we still put physicians on those submarines. He would always just return to the opportunities, the unique things he got to do, the camaraderie. So I was interested in medicine uh, really very young. He did his uh, residency in anesthesia at uh, Balboa Naval Hospital San Diego at the time. And I vividly remember in second grade going with him uh, into the operating room. Uh, I know we probably couldn't do that now, but and to this day, as an anesthesiologist, since I ended up as an orthopod, thinks I ended up on the wrong end of the wrong side of the blood brain barrier. But just fascinated by what he would tell me, particularly in that era, it was the Vietnam period. And he would always come home and talk about uh, just how terrific the surgeons who had deployed, uh, what team players they were, how efficient they were, how they got right down to business. He said his best days were when he was uh, covering those cases. So so it was planted early. I grew up uh, in San Diego, so I learned how to scuba dive when I became eligible. And so the opportunity to go in, be a doctor, and get paid to do scuba and submarines seemed like a pretty good deal. So you mentioned that you're an orthopedic surgeon and trained at Naval Medical Center San Diego, but you also completed a fellowship in pediatric orthopedic surgery at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. What's the role of pediatric orthopedics in the Navy, and is there a deployed role for a pediatric orthopod? As you well know from your experience, we take care of beneficiaries and we also have residencies. So the residencies require that we have faculty that have all the appropriate subspecialties. I was initially interested based on some time with Colonel Vic Garcia at Walter Reed to be a pediatric general surgeon. But when I did my time as a, as a diving medical officer in Puerto Rico, I realized that orthopedics was really 
what I was interested in. And then I was thrilled to find that they actually had a field called pediatric orthopedics. And so probably 75, 80% of my time, I would take care of children of active duty and, and retirees. But I would also take general call because to your other point, all of us in orthopedics are Mark one mod zero orthopods first. So so I wanted to keep my skills up on the adult sides so that I could deploy because that was one of my main motivations for being in uniform. As an undersea medicine expert and taking care of submariners, what are some of the unique things that you see in that population that most people wouldn't think of? Yeah, it's interesting. Again, a one atmosphere environment, so so we're not worried about hyperbaric exposure and that sort of thing. But um, these are very highly skilled folks. It's a very demanding environment. Uh, they, you know, are enlisted. The enlisted um, are, are those who have scored the most, you know, really some of the highest scores uh, in their entrance examinations. Uh, but it's uh, very high pressure, particularly if you're aboard uh, one of the fast attack submarines. And so probably one of the biggest issues, uh, and following my stint as the PAC fleet surgeon, I was the fleet forces surgeons. So essentially what was the old Atlantic fleet, but but more at that level and thinking more about policy and you know monitoring of, of the health aboard all of our vessels. And the submariners at that time were losing uh, about a full crew of submariners each year. So these are highly trained individuals. They don't get aboard the submarine until they've had about two years of training. And so uh, they were losing them to primarily mental health issues. And so uh, we recognize that because of the security clearances, because of the, you know, the requirements of their job, any of the crewmen were unwilling to come forward and say, hey, I need help because they were worried they'd lose their security clearance or be disqualified. And so at the time, the, the force surgeon for, for uh, submarine forces Atlantic uh, helped uh, put together, uh, he and his staff helped put together uh, what we called embedded mental health for the submarine squadrons there. And so it was really much closer to the deck plate. And that involved, and we built on this subsequently in other areas, but that involved uh, having, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists there uh, able to not only do, you know, very quick uh, care and minimize barriers to access, but also do a lot of training for both uh, the leadership uh, and the crews themselves and work on stress reduction techniques and all of the, and those sorts of things. What's interesting is, uh, and we also have what are known as behavioral health techs. And so for the younger, more junior sailors, they often feel much more comfortable talking to the behavioral health techs uh, than, than an officer, you know, a medical officer. So we found that that embedded uh, mental health assets paid tremendous dividends. And so we, we saw a significant decrease in what are known as unplanned losses, those who are those who were lost for a medical condition, in this case, mental health. While assigned to the Naval Medical Center San Diego, you were instrumental in establishing the comprehensive combat and complex casualty. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? I deployed fairly early to Iraq, to Fallujah in 2004 uh, and five, And I recognized, like many others, that the wounds that our folks were sustaining were beyond what we were used to dealing dealing with at our medsense, and that really required a, a comprehensive holistic approach. And so when I got back from deployment, I was the director of surgery at Balboa, and I, I sat down with our, our admiral and I said, sir, I think we really need to think about emulating what Walter Reed has done in terms of preparing to take care of, primarily for Balboa, uh, marine casualties. 
And the Marines' philosophy is that when they can, the wounded come back to the unit. And so for those who are requiring continued treatment for all of our Marines on the West Coast at Camp Pendleton, that's Balboa and Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton. And I just realized that there was a gap there and the commander was very supportive. And we were able to embed mental health assets. We actually started off with Army physiatrists because we had very few in the Navy and really tried to put that comprehensive program together so that an injured Marine primarily could come have coordination of their care, not have to make multiple trips, say, from uh, Oceanside down to San Diego. So you mentioned that you were in Operation Iraqi Freedom early as a battalion chief of professional services for the first, first four service support group, an officer in charge of the surgical shock trauma platoon. Do you have any memorable experiences or cases from that deployment that are remarkable? I would say that's probably one of the very formative period of my career, I probably would not still be in uniform had I not had that experience. But as I said at the beginning, you know, I'd always thought that as a military surgeon that I would deploy, but as a pediatric orthopedist and as the only faculty member for our residency, I didn't have the opportunity until I got a partner. And uh, so I volunteered to go with uh, what was called uh, the surgical shock trauma platoon, as you said. It was two of the small mobile Marine surgical teams. And just for the audience to understand that Navy medicine provides all the medical care to the Marine Corps, but within in this case, organically embedded with Marines. So two of those seven person surgical teams, plus essentially the non-surgical resuscitative emergency team, triage team. So we were in the lovely location of Takatam, Iraq, uh, which was between Ramadi and Fallujah really just had a terrific team. I think it speaks to the to the men and women of military medicine. We had folks from 12 different hospitals. We'd never trained together, but working with the team that we replaced uh, really came together very quickly. What was remarkable to me is while the wounds we were seeing were very different from our clinical practice back home, uh, it was still surgery, but for our corpsmen and our nurses, they were doing things that were well beyond their experience and how quickly they adapted really literally blossomed and grew up because most of our folks were pretty junior. Uh, as one example, so ensign nurses, equivalent of a second lieutenant nurse, willingly getting on helicopters to take our wounded to Baghdad, doing that at night uh, over hostile territory. Our corpsmen, our surgical turnover times in our surgical tents were 10 minutes or less. So when I got back to Balboa as the director of surgery, I said, hey, these one-hour turnover times just aren't going to work anymore. So really just the teamwork. I'm a huge fan of uh, concepts of high reliability. And I'd been fortunate to have a mentor, Dr. John Webster, uh, one of our spine surgeons who subsequently became chairman at Balboa, who had introduced those to me in thinking about patient safety and preventable patient harm. I was able to use those concepts when that situation uh, in Iraq and really was the foundation for what I tried to do as the director of surgery systemically and subsequently now as a surgeon general in Navy medicine, really foster those concepts. So long answer, but clearly a very formative, critical period. Any particular cases that, that stand out in your memory? We had a, an Army second lieutenant uh, who was a victim of an IED. Uh, he, this was before Up Armor and MRAPs and all of the more protective uh, vehicles. And uh, the, the blast had gone off directly underneath him. He was sitting on a sandbag, and uh, that drove a tremendous amount of debris 
uh, into essentially the gloving injury that in, that uh, included his uh, groin and the entirety of, of his uh, right thigh posteriorly. And so initially, I just put on just gloves and we just literally just scooped uh, the mud and the sand out of the wound. Uh, and then I was able to see the entirety of his sciatic nerve because, as I said, the, the wound was degloving. He required uh, 46 units of blood. And that was a dramatic demonstration for me of the power of whole blood because he started to get dilutional coagulopathy at about four or six of our PRBC units. And uh, so we activated the Viking Blood Bank and uh, were able to give him whole blood. And it made a significant difference uh, in his outcome. And uh, he subsequently, we tracked him through the echelons of care. And about a year later, we were home by then. The general surgeon who had kept in contact with his family sent us a picture uh, that his father had sent him uh, that showed him kayaking. And as part of of the rehab at Walter Reed. So I think that was an incredibly fulfilling experience, probably the most badly injured person uh, we saw in terms of requiring blood products and the severity of his illness, uh, injury. Uh, but to see him returning to normal function was pretty uh, gratifying. So one of the things that I remember deploying in 2005 as a urologist, we were really busy and I found myself doing a lot of orthopedic surgery and I got pretty good at putting X fixes on. Now, you're an orthopedic surgeon. Did you find yourself having to do general surgery or other things that you weren't used to doing? I did. We had three general surgeons and myself as the orthopod, uh, which we found was a very good ratio because we'd get casualties. Uh, I'd help one of the general surgeons, the other two. We had two ORs, expanded briefly to three during uh, what was known as Operation Phantom Fury, that second push into Fallujah in 2004. And so I would go in and do the best I could to assist the general surgeon. I remember how to pack things and I, I remember how to keep my hands out of the way and try to be helpful. I did have the advantage as a pediatric orthopedist that I was very comfortable getting into the chest. So I was comfortable with that. I was able to help uh, during thoracotomies and that sort of thing. And then the other skill that fortunately I had attended a three-day emergency war surgery course at Balboa before I deployed, very rudimentary in, in its time then. Uh, but was taught by one of the general surgeons there how to do vascular shunts. So we did a we did a number of vascular shunts. I was in the situation on several occasions of doing those solo. So I learned a lot in that regard. And I think we were able to get quite a bit of limb salvage as a result. But to, to our year end, of the three general surgeons, two were willing to learn how to do X fixes and one just said, hey, that's yours. I'm, I, I'm not going to try and do that. But to their credit, our surgical tech, uh, technicians uh, our corpsman, I would put the pins in and then go to the other room and say, hey, put the frame on. Here's what I want. And I'd come in and check it and tighten it and and uh, off they would go. So I think the larger, larger issue is the teamwork uh, and everybody getting a little bit out of their comfort zone to, to take care of the patients. You had an operational assignment on the hospital ship, the Mercy. What was your role on the ship? And can you tell us a little bit about that opportunity? Yeah, I started off as one of the staff orthopedic surgeons. This was before Mercy and Comfort were actively doing the humanitarian assistance uh, disaster relief missions. Over time, I became the director of surgery aboard Mercy. I uh, really tried to update the inventory of equipment and really anticipate uh, what we might need beyond combat casualty care, which are the, is the platform's primary mission. Uh, and so we added a humanitarian, what we call AMOL, the medical equipment, 
I subsequently deployed to Iraq and I was in my surgical tent working on my tough book when my wife emailed me and said, hey, Mercy's on its way to help out in Indonesia for, uh, as, as you know, after the tsunami. And I remember jumping up and being so excited that Mercy was going to have a role in responding because it had been several years since our uh, THs had been involved in that way. So didn't actually get to do an operational deployment on Mercy, but feel like I helped contribute uh, to their subsequent success. Have you had any interesting stories of treating pediatric patients as an orthopedic surgeon on any deployments or any of your operational assignments? Very memorably in Iraq, we had a young girl. There was a village outside the wire near Takadam. The civil affairs group had been out trying to establish relationships. They identified this girl who had been shot through the foot with an AK-47 by her brother, I think accidentally. So um, through some negotiations with the village elders, the uh, civil affairs group arranged for her to be treated at Takadam. So we actually brought her and her father, took one of our casualty tents and made it their apartment, if you will. Uh, I was able to, to get some tobramycin, mix it with some bone cement that we had, put in uh, antibiotic eluding beads after debriding her wound, which was, as you can imagine, several days uh, after the initial injury needed a lot of work. So we were able to keep her for about six weeks, I modified one of the X fixes to to stabilize her first metatarsal. Actually, was able to get get that to heal, and uh, her wound appeared very clean and healed by the time uh, she went back to her village. But interestingly, and certainly not the primary intent, but interestingly, as a result of these this effort and others that the civil affairs group had done, they actually that became one of their richest sources of intelligence about insert the insurgency. So I think it was obviously an operational benefit, but I still remember her Ahuda was her name, and I was pleased that I got to use my pediatric orthopedic skills in that environment. Can you tell us any interesting cases as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon that um, that stand out to you? I really enjoyed scoliosis surgery, and so I think. One of the great things about a career in military medicine is I got to practice the full scope of my specialty. And one of the reasons I like Peds Ortho is, is that it includes aspects of every other part of orthopedics. You can become a total joint specialist, for example, and just do a variety in your day as I'm doing a left hip instead of a right hip. Or, whereas I could be uh, doing club feet one day, I could be doing a scoliosis surgery the next, fractures, you name it, sports med, uh, arthroscopic stuff. I think some of the neuromuscular cases stand out. As you know, particularly in spina bifida, when you, when you have to do both front and back spinal release and fusion, uh, you can end up with significant blood loss. And one of the things we worked on at Balboa, I was fortunate to, to be there with some very progressive anesthesiologists, one of whom had uh, received a lot of training in uh, multi-component phoresis. So, so we would bring the patients in, they would take a couple of units uh, off pre-op, they would uh, dilute them a little bit, uh, but then they would spin the blood they had taken off into three components. It would be the red cells, of course, plasma, and then they would get platelets. And so during the course of the operation, they'd give the PRBCs and the, and the plasma back but we would use the platelets and we would actually make a platelet gel and we would actually use that to help close and to decrease blood loss. So we, we got very good, particularly with idiopathic scoliosis. So otherwise young, healthy 
uh, adolescence, uh, we got to the point where it was a rare, rare day where we actually had to transfuse, you know, heterologous blood. Uh, and in the and the neuromusculars, we were able to demonstrate that we used uh, significantly less blood than than we would have. Uh, previously. So I was deployed with a pediatric orthopedic surgeon on a split forward surgical team. So the only two surgeons on the FOB was me and a person named Jefferson Jex. He had done several humanitarian missions as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Did you ever have the opportunity to do any of those? I did. I did several trips to Ecuador. Uh, and actually, it's interesting. And it turned out to be extremely valuable prep for deployment because the places we went in Ecuador were very austere and it was very rare to even have x-ray. So for a pediatric orthopedist, that's, you know, that's, that's a real handicap. One case stands out in particular. We had gone to Ecuador uh, and then one of our nurses uh, actually, who would, was kind of our case finder, uh, would, would go down before our cases. He actually identified a young boy who had severe neglected bilateral club feet. He was five or six years old wasn't allowed to go to school because he couldn't wear shoes. That was a requirement. And so long story short, we arranged to actually treat him at Balboa because of the extent of his club feet. I wasn't comfortable doing that in the settings that we were in in Ecuador. We were able to actually bring him as he, as a secretary of Navy humanitarian case. Uh, there was a host family that had him and his and a, a parent while we were treating him. So we did the surgery uh, and then um, watched him for about six weeks until we took his, his casts off and watched him walk out of the hospital, which was pretty exciting. One of the many interesting things in your bio that caught my attention was when you were the Pacific Fleet Surgeon, you had the opportunity to work with the Vietnam People's Navy. What was that about? It was interesting. Uh, obviously, we were, we were uh, really trying to establish a great bilateral relationship with the Vietnamese Navy. And I think we all recognize that, that medicine, medical care, is a very non-threatening way to kind of get started. And so through a series of events, they were in the process of obtaining five kilo-class submarines from, from Russia, but they really had no conception of what preparation for submarine duty required. And uh, in fact, they believed that it was hyperbaric. The key thing to understand, and obviously in the submarine, it's a one-atmosphere environment. And so when I went to Haiphong, where their uh, naval hospital was, they had an area set aside vision of hyperbaric medicine. And as we had discussions and explained what was required to get people ready to be submariners, on my return trip, it had become Department of Undersea Medicine. And we were, I was actually, we were able to, to really give them the fundamentals, provide a lot of information about how to ensure force health protection aboard submarines, how to prepare crews and that sort of thing. And, and as a result of that effort, we subsequently were able to bring, I think, initially uh, Mercy in for a, a port visit, and then subsequently uh, some of our some of our combatants. And so, so again, I think medicine is a great way to open the door. And it was just it was intellectually stimulating to teach those concepts to them, uh, and they were very eager to learn. You were involved in the aftermath of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Tell us what role you played and what lessons were learned from that experience. Uh, as Pacific Fleet surgeon, I obviously was the medical advisor to the commander of Pacific Fleet. Uh, when Fukushima happened, the decision was made to activate a joint task force. My boss, the, the uh, PAC Fleet commander, was made the, the joint task force commander. And so I went over with him 
as his medical advisor. It was fortunate that I had been an undersea medical officer because obviously this was a how do you function in a, in a potentially contaminated environment. It was probably the most intense month of my life uh, in that really trying to work through what are the standards for acceptable water contamination, soil, et cetera. Terrific joint effort. Uh, we leveraged uh, Army Public Health there at Camp Zama and their expertise. Um, the U- U.S. Forces Japan surgeon was an Air Force public health doctor. Uh, and so we utilized his expertise and really came together to try to understand what a safe environment. We also had the uh, Air Force radiologic assessment team, which was really the first time they'd been activated. So they came and set up their tents actually inside a warehouse and were able to do a lot of the testing of the samples, uh, which was pretty remarkable. I I think probably one of the key takeaways for me, for for someone listening, is the value of understanding uh, risk communication. And so uh, Navy Marine Corps Public Health Center has uh, experts in risk communication. I was able to work with them to help structure what was being passed to the to the folks living in Yokosuka, those living in Yokota, uh, where where USFJ headquarters is. And I think that uh, when it moved to voluntary uh, evacuation, I think the fact that we had done a lot of risk communication uh, helped limit the number of people that actually elected to leave because we were able to tell them what the risks were. Uh, we were it was very fortunate the plume from the nuclear power plants was blowing out to sea uh, and remained so, and fortunately didn't turn south toward Tokyo. But as you can imagine, as a guy that had been practicing orthopedics for several years, that was a, that was a very different environment, but I was able to default to what I had known and learned as an undersea medical officer, plus leverage really our, our radiation health officers who are experts in that, uh, in terms of uh, what are known as dose estimations, potential exposure, and pretty quickly, I think we were able to to bound the you know the risk issue, uh, provide really good uh, advice to our commander, and he had a very challenging job because whatever we were going to recommend for U.S. forces and their families, we had to obviously make sure that that we were harmonizing with with uh, our Japanese counterparts. One of the many jobs that you've held in Navy medicine is assistant program director for the orthopedic surgery residency program. How important is GME training in Navy medicine? And you know, now you're the Surgeon General. What is the plan for graduate medical education? In a word, existential. I think graduate medical education is really our life's blood. That's a nice motto, but I truly believe it. As you see from my bio, I'm a proud product of Navy GME, but I think I think military medical GME is essential for all the services because we not only for understanding you know the unique environments that our patients live and work in, but also kind of still instilling that ethos from the beginning. Plus, we know that there's just not the capacity in this in the civilian world to take on the amount of GME that we need to do just to sustain our force. And in fact, the president of the ACGME a year or so ago uh, sent a letter that said, in essence, please, whatever you do, don't cut or eliminate GME. We're counting on the folks that you train at the end of their careers to come into the community and be experienced healthcare providers. So uh, I, I think it's critically important. And I think we 
certainly uh, in discussions with General Place and the other certain generals, need to think about ways to perhaps consolidate uh, and improve GME in terms of making sure that we're maintaining sufficient uh, case complexity and, and volume of cases. But in my experience, the GME product, the, fo- the residents that we graduate are on par with, with any physicians in the United States. So I probably know the answer to this because we, we talked to Captain Christine Sears a couple weeks ago down in Southcom, and she said that the Navy medicine is, is up to its ears with COVID stuff and, and planning. But you know, what is, as a Surgeon General of the Navy, what is on the front burner right now? And, and really, what challenges does Navy medicine face currently? Sure. I think we're in an unprecedented period of change. So certainly in the near term, keeping the fleet and the Marine Corps safe through COVID is job number one. That's been really obviously very time consuming and challenging, but it's really helped accelerate our development as a high reliability organization within medicine because fundamental to high reliability is the idea of rapid cycle feedback. And uh, just because of the nature of the pandemic, we've been forced to develop guidance, have the fleet and the Marine Corps evaluate it, use it, give us feedback back, adjust it based on, as we all have learned, the evolving nature of uh, COVID. But then stepping back, we were hoping that we would get to a point where we could be in a steady state with that until, the, until we really get to a true endemic COVID and, and can move on. But at the same time, really thinking about the future of the military health system and what role will Navy medicine play. Congress has told us where our priorities ought to be. Uh, It makes sense that we should focus on uh, readiness, both, uh, you know, medical force readiness and force medical readiness. But, um, you know, working out the roles and responsibilities with the DHA, doing that, I think, in a very collaborative manner. They're going to be growing pains through that. But ultimately, I think that we can end up with a uh, military health system where uh, an individual will know how to make an appointment, whether on an army base, a Navy base, or an Air Force base, that the care they receive is going to be standardized to the maximum extent it can be and where it makes sense. Uh, And that yet the services are going to get the service-specific medical guidance that they need. So it's very different. You know, if, uh, if the Air Force is doing undersea medicine, it's been a pretty bad day. And uh, so... So we need to preserve those unique, you know, expertise. Uh, but there's a lot that we can do together, and I and I agree. And I think making a lot of progress. And I think as we continue to learn to trust each other and collaborate, we really, honestly, have the opportunity to develop really a model for integrated healthcare. You were the senior author as a general officer on a paper published in November of 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine on COVID-19 and the outbreak on the aircraft carrier USS Teddy Roosevelt. In that paper, it was mentioned that the Navy created virus-free bubbles and that that was then replicated by the NBA and Major League Soccer. As senior author and leader in Navy medicine, tell us about that concept and what was adapted to other places and how that ended up shaping Navy medicine. When when a quarter of of your one of your largest warships has an outbreak, it gets your attention. We were this really goes along with that high reliability idea. We were forced to to quickly understand the situation, really really defer to expertise in the sense of our public health and PrevMed docs and virologists. We had anticipated that uh, particularly our ships in the in the Pacific were going to be at risk, and so we had put additional laboratory and public health assets aboard Roosevelt. That turned out to be 
really helpful because they were able to do the initial research only testing to identify SARS-CoV-2 aboard. When I came in as the Surgeon General, uh, I established guidance that, that are called the four Ps. It's, it's extremely well-trained people operating on optimized platforms who are demonstrating high reliability performance as cohesive teams to produce uh, medical power for naval superiority. Frankly, when I sat down and, and wrote that, I was thinking of my experience in Iraq in combat casualty care. What COVID and what Teddy Roosevelt taught us was that projection of medical power can very much be a public health specialist, a prevent, prev, you know, prev med doc, a virologist. And so understanding that actually pulled together a scientific panel um, because uh, it was partly, partly self-preservation because every new advance or a new story that appeared on CNN or Fox News, I would come to work and my email would be overflowing questions from senior leaders about what that meant and what the implications were. And so I put together senior, you know, this senior scientific panel to help synthesize all of the emerging information. And so that group was advising Captain Sears as 7th Fleet Surgeon at the time, uh, Captain McGinnis uh, as the PAC Fleet Surgeon, uh, and, the, and the medical team aboard Roosevelt uh, to really uh, understand and provide the best possible guidance. So we went to, remembering this is pre-vaccine, we knew that we, our Navy Marine Corps Public Health Center couldn't told us we couldn't completely eliminate the virus, but we could significantly limit it uh, by restriction of movement. So the two-week period of time before deployment where the sailors were essentially quarantined uh, Marines also remembering that they go on our amphibious ships uh, and then very, very assiduously practicing non-pharmaceutical interventions and uh, having a very low threshold um, as, as testing became more and more available to test uh, and to do really essentially concentric rings around any suspected case. And um, so Roosevelt, was we learned quite a bit. Uh, you probably may or may not know that uh, that we had a destroyer shortly thereafter have a similar outbreak while it was operating uh, in Southcom. And because of the guidance we'd learned and things we'd learned from Roosevelt, the independent duty corpsman aboard recognized some atypical symptoms in his, in his uh, sailors, recognized he probably had COVID aboard. One of his sailors was pretty symptomatic, uh, was flown to Brooke and was diagnosed with COVID. Uh, we were able to put a. We were able to uh, send a team out uh, by helicopter to put additional assets on uh, the destroyer. But that, uh, until recently, until Omicron, that was the last outbreak that really had operational impact. And so it's that rapid cycle feedback. It was learning, uh, learning presentation and the atypical presentation. That paper uh, was accompanied by a report in the. Uh, with the CDC the morbidity uh, morbidity report reporting those atypical symptoms of of loss of sense of taste and smell and so we built on that is what, is what I'm getting at um, and I'm glad that other organizations were able to use that at the same time in that same New England Journal there was an article uh, that was prospective that was following marine recruits through their training at Paris Island and our Navy Marine Navy Medical Research Command. Uh, in conjunction uh, with some civilian uh, academic institutions, was able to demonstrate that even in a setting like that, where you have the Marine recruits under under significant control, uh, they were still very susceptible to infection. And in fact, uh, in cohorts, they identified six different phylogenetic strains of COVID. 
And so the idea that we were able to use our experience, publish that, uh, and that it was of national and international significance, I think was, again, very gratifying. So I think it's very impressive that a general officer would take the time to be involved with a research study that ultimately became published in the New England Journal of Medicine. What would you say to other military officers who are looking at you know situations that arise that are unique to the military and advising them on how to approach those problems and potentially get it published in a very prestigious journal? I think we, because we are often in unique situations, uh, we do have unique opportunities. I, I think about uh, the Iraq experience, and I, I just think there's this virtuous cycle that we can participate in. We learn things in austere environments. We do the best to under, we can to understand them, publish that. We share that with, with our academic civilian colleagues. Uh, they, they can scale those things, perhaps in, in, in their environments. And then we get refinement of those concepts that we bring back to the field. So I've uh, always been a huge believer in the fact that we can answer uh, some unique research issues, uh, but that that they are generally uh, generalizable. That's a great, uh, as I told senators and congressmen that we've testified in front of, what a tremendous dividend on the taxpayer dollar. Uh, that we're not only providing, of course, health protection, but then we can turn around and provide that to the American public. You know, one of the things that we've noticed in this podcast is that a lot of normal, regular people out in America don't know a whole lot about the military health system. So what is one thing you'd want all of America to know about military medicine and, and maybe Navy medicine specifically? I would say that just how dedicated folks are. I mean, both of you understand that. I think that there are people who are willing uh, to put themselves in harm's way to to provide medical care for those who defend our freedoms, uh, that contrary to what they probably believe, it's not a rigid hierarchy. I don't order something and instantly have it done. And I still have to be able to approach things and use influence strategies and, and uh, good scientific evidence. But I think it's just that all healthcare workers are very dedicated. But I think I think our military medical folks take it to the next level um, and that they're incredibly valuable assets uh, when when they whether they separate at some point in their career or whether they retire and then go into the community uh, that uh, they have tremendous things to offer, not only in terms of their medical knowledge and experience, but in terms of their leadership. I think I think across military medicine. Uh, we give people responsibility early, uh, and we probably allow folks and expect folks to practice more independently just by virtue of the nature of our jobs. Uh, and so when those folks are are looking for employment, uh, they're getting a twofer. They're getting someone who's probably extremely well-trained, uh, but they're also getting uh, someone who can be a leader in their organization at all levels. So there may be some people out there that have not yet started their careers and 20-year-old college student, for instance, who is interested in medicine and is considering all the different options, what would you tell them about the military medicine pathway? I would say go for it. You know, it, it's not a life, doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. Um, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be among folks who also want to do something beyond themselves, who want to serve a larger purpose. They're going to have opportunities that folks in the civilian um, sector just don't get. And uh, whether it's being paid like I was to scuba dive in the Caribbean and take care of special warfare folks and submariners or go visit 
places uh, and be pushed a little bit uh, to practice at the top of their skill set, it's going to be a rewarding experience, whether it's four or five years or whether it's 40 years, like in my case. So you're helping lead the current generation of military medicine. What do you see are the improvements and changes in military medicine in the next 20, 10 to 20 years, say when someone in my generation is starting to get to your level that you foresee being issues that we should accomplish? I, I think we have an opportunity as a system to really demonstrate value-based care. You know, I one of the things that has kept me in the Navy and Navy medicine is that I never had to spend any time justifying what I wanted to do uh, to an insurance company. I had to perhaps convince a radiologist that I needed a certain study, but that was a medical discussion, not a, not a what coverage does my patient uh, have discussion. I think if we get this right, if we get this transformation right, we're going to raise the bar. We're going to demonstrate how a system can provide very high levels of care across the entirety of the organization, as opposed to having all-stars uh, and folks who aren't quite as good. And I, I think that's exciting. Uh, I think we have the opportunity to really rapidly share best practice. And, I've, and there have been examples of that, and I'll, and I'll give you one. When I was the commander of Navy Medicine West, so the you know, Navy Medicine Admiral in charge of all our facilities on the West Coast and the Pacific, uh, I asked my staff early on, I said, what's the number one way Navy Medicine West hurts patients? And initially they couldn't tell me. So I took that as concerning. And so I said, well, I want you to come back to me and answer that question. And so they did a few days later and they said, number one, we don't recognize postpartum hemorrhage well, and we don't and we don't address it well. And we had actually even had uh, a postpartum a death and a staff member during my tenure. And so what we were able to do is put together a group of experts and say, I really want you to come back with really a, a postpartum care bundle. And that team included not only obstetricians and anesthesiologists, uh, but blood bank specialists to discuss appropriate massive transfusion protocols. It involved pharmacists because it turned out uh, we didn't have a consistent dose of oxytocin that we gave. It involved logisticians because uh, one, you know, the carts in each labor and delivery room were different. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a standardized cart to respond uh, in those situations. And, you know, unlike what we do for, for ACLS, they came back to me um, in about 45 days. Uh, they had put together a beautiful bundle and it started with recognition. It started with standardizing the way that you assess the blood loss, in this case by weighing the pads and, and then standardizing best practice, whatever the best practice was for the correct oxytocin dose. Wasn't necessarily agreement in the literature, but we said, we're going to start with what we think is right and, and track this. And then it had a training plan. Once, once we came up with this, we were coordinating with our counterparts and and they participated in the discussions. And so uh, we got our special leaders to do a final review, publish that as the way we would, we would address identification and treatment of postpartum hemorrhage. And it just so happened at that time that I was transferring to the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. And one of my jobs as essentially the ops guy was to be part of what was known as the medical operations group. So I sat with my counterparts from Air Force, Army, and the DHA, and I introduced this protocol and I said, guys, here was our situation. Here's what we developed. Uh, do you think we could adopt this across, across the MHS? And so at the two-star level, uh, we slapped the table and provided the training 
So all of a sudden, all nine, you know, all OB providing MTFs in military medicine had one standard with the recognition that we would track it and we would adjust it, but we would be able to do that system-wide. Because I was always struck that we would have cottage industries. We would have some MTFs that were doing certain things just really well, had broken the code, if you will. And we had other locations where just hadn't gotten the word or, or were doing it you know, less perfect way. So the ability to come together as an MHS, use subject matter expertise to say, we believe this is the best standard community, uh, clinical community, if you will, uh, and then pass that across all relevant uh, MTFs, I thought was immensely powerful. And that work's continued, I'm, I'm happy to say. And General Place and I meet once a month, and we discuss a lot of those things as ways that we can raise the bar across the system. And so uh, that's what I'm excited about. I, I think about, uh, again, high reliability. The people at the deck plate, as we say in the Navy, really have the best understanding of how to go about things. And so how can we leverage that? How can we disseminate that, validate it, uh, and then assess how we're doing going forward? Long answer, but I think that's a real opportunity for the MHS transformation so that we're not doing it one way in an Army MTF, a different way in a Navy when when in fact there's a better third way. So one of the things we like to do on the podcast is is ask a kind of a legacy question. And if your family 50, 100 years from now unearths this podcast, what is something that you'd want them to hear about your military medicine career? Yeah, I think that I got tremendous gratification and satisfaction out of using my talents uh, and skills for the benefit of, of truly remarkable individuals, uh, in our case, in the Navy and the Marine Corps. But I got a chance at every stage of my career to be challenged and to, to use to grow those talents, and that I was enormously proud of that and had no regrets having spent this long in uniform. We've been speaking with Rear Admiral Bruce Gillingham. Sir, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us on WarDocs, and thanks for your service to the nation. Oh, you're welcome. True privilege. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of WarDocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.